Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maben, and today I'm joined by Jamie Allenson. Jamie is a scholar of politics and international relations with a particular interest in the contemporary Middle East. He's particularly interested in how forms of political power within, across, and beyond borders interact with people and movements originating in the realms more commonly thought of as society and the economy. His most recent book, The Age of Counter-Revolution, States and Revolutions in the Middle East, addresses these questions by looking at the fate of the quote-unquote Arab Spring. He's also the recipient of the Fred Halliday Award, given to recognize an outstanding mid-career scholar researching the Middle East slash Mediterranean region. Jamie, it's a real pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's really great to be here. Well... We've got so many points of, of crossover interest here, I think, and there's so many things that I want to delve deeper into. But first, as always, I must ask, what got you interested in the Middle East and, and the IR politics, power of the Middle East more broadly? Yeah, um, so I suppose there are maybe two parts to that. One is how it is I became interested in, I suppose you'd say, the field or the discipline and the other is particularly how I became interested in the Middle East. Um, the first one, I mean, I've always been, at least since I was a teenager, interested in, in politics mm-hmm. and in power and who has it and who doesn't um, and how that connects to who has lots of things and who doesn't. So I really came out of a political commitment and kind of being politically active, and from that, think, trying to um, think about the sources of the problems one might be trying to address and solve. Um, so I studied international relations at university for that reason, but also because it just seemed quite exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, seems like I mean, this was the mid to late 1990s um, when politics in this country was a bit uh, probably more optimistic than it is now but it was a bit dull perhaps or it felt like felt like the states had been evacuated in yeah. some way um, and so I kind of looked further afield to more international relations and particularly to to the Middle East um, which is a place I have no kind of family background or religious connection to or anything like that, just somewhere I was interested in. I was always interested in um, Islam, the history of Islam and the kind of cultures associated with Islam. Mm -hmm. And I think just with, I have to admit, kind of element of exoticism, places were very different, Mm -hmm. cultures that were very different, languages that were very different. I wanted to know more about them. So I kind of took the courses at university on the Middle East, um, which were taught by, because I went to St. Andrews, uh, Ray Hinnabish, who continued to be a big influence on me. Um, and that I was kind of hooked at that point, I think, uh, because mm-hmm. of his, his teaching and his, his writing. Um, and then I actually went to to Palestine to study Arabic. And from that point on, I think this became more 
intrigued in how these two interests came, could come together. Yeah, that that's really interesting. With that that political sort of consciousness that you speak of more broadly, was there a a, a particular moment that that got you interested in these questions of of the political and power more broadly, or is it just a process of osmosis um, at the time? I mean, both my my parents and the kind of general area, I suppose, environment that I grew up in was fairly critical of the, the politics of the 1980s and 1990s. Mm-hmm. I mean, was uh, a total feeling of alienation in, in a post-industrial town um, very far from, you know, a place where the decisions were being made. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, you know, that was the time of Thatcher, really, and her, her successors. And um, that creates everyone. Everyone hates Thatcher. <laughs> and um, so to be su- such a difference between the kind of uh, family and town that I grew up in and what was on the telly or on the radio or mm-hmm. the newspaper. Or it creates a sense of disconnection that needs to be explained. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I think there was, I mean, very particularly, there was one kind of incident um, in the early 90s. There was a big strike in Dundee, uh, a watch factory, Timex watch factory, um, which lasted for a long time. It was, and I realize now it was kind of, uncanny for its time. It was more like the industrial disputes of the 70s, probably, in that there were proper fights with the police, mass ranks of pickets. The whole town was divided between the people who supported the strike, which was the majority, I think, and then a minority who didn't, but also the kind of local press and the police and these kind of groups. Um, and that sharpened my, or that gave me the sense that there is, there is a line, I mean physically, a line. Yeah. That you're on one side of, or the other. Um, and, you know, to see, and to know kind of people being on one side of the line and battered by the police on the other just teaches you a lot yeah. about about the sovereign, yeah. about power, yeah. about politics. Um, and also to see how the press works. So the local press in Dundee, which is owned by quite a well-known firm, DC Thompson, people own the Beanie, Beano, the Dandy, mm-hmm. uh, these comics. Um, that might reporting. not mean a lot to our uh, our international <laughs> listeners and uh, people of a certain age, but I know what you yeah, mean, Jamie. Um, there were well-known uh, comics uh, <laughs> with characters like Desperate Dan and um, Dennis the Menace and this kind of thing. I don't think you need to know more. Um, but I remember very clearly the press kind of reporting that uh, Marxist agitators are coming to Dundee to stir up trouble. And I thought, who are these Marxist agitators? They sound interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. It's fascinating hearing you... Um reflect on that and your time growing up in Dundee. I'm from um, a, a northern English town called Doncaster and the yes. similarities of experience 
of political marginalization, of um, the decimation of a political economy of the town by the, the conservative government under Thatcher. Yeah, a lot of similarities. But maybe, yeah. um, maybe that's a conversation for another time. Maybe. Probably. <laughs> so you go to Palestine then, and you see these these two interests starting to to come together. Um, tell us what was that what that was like, please, and and when was this? Nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so an interesting um, time to be there. Well, it was just before the Second Intifada, yeah. and the thing was, it was actually a very um, comparatively booming time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was in kind of Ramallah was being constructed. I've got a strong memory of getting in the taxi and bits of the road not being finished. Huh. And like the taxi driver just going onto this kind of scree, you know, as the, as the guys were concreting it yeah. in front of us. Um, it was, I mean, one thing is just at that age, when you go somewhere and you're not really being outside of Europe or someone that has really a, a, a different culture and a different, a different, very different language and all these kind of things, it, it has a, an effect on you. Because um, mm-hmm. then that's the way that you, I guess, are experiencing the wider world. And yeah. so that is what I wanted to know and have more of and just, yeah, fell in love. But also to see, even at that time, like you could see it wasn't going to work because you have, on the one hand, Palestinians who, you know, electricity doesn't run all the time. Yeah. And the water gets, gets cut off. And they can't go. I lived with Palestinian students. So I lived with other young guys, but mm-hmm. they were Palestinians, which is really good. I mean, I mean that was excellent aspect of it. Um, but, you know, they couldn't. You know, one of them was from Gaza. Couldn't yeah. really family so on, and yet on the other side, literally other side of the valley, you know, on the hills around Jerusalem, right? south, uh, east or west of Ramallah, you know, settlements being built, mm-hmm. which are now towns. I mean, yeah. they're big cities, really, but at that time they were just being built, and you can see that they look like. Um, uh, American yeah. sort of uh, suburb, basically. So to see that happening, to see that mm-hmm. level of uh, discrimination yeah. between people and oppression of them, again, it, it kind of linked together these the things that I've been learning and the frameworks that I've been learning about with yeah. a, a real experience and so i think that that was kind of set me on that path yeah i bet i bet and that that sort of spatial transformation in the style of an american suburb which i mean you see now when you go to the west bank and you see these huge settler cities i mean they're not settlements anymore are they right they're 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 um they're, they're these cities is is the manifestation of, of, of political power and economic power and colonization, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think, um, a kind of, 
I don't think I could have articulated this at the time, but it increased a sense that I, I have that people often represent as cultural difference or cultural problems, things that are actually extremely material. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of cultural distinction, whether you are allowed to access your olive grove or not. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing more material than someone pulling you out of your home in the middle of the night. Um, so a kind of reaction against something which is very common at the time, which was a view of politics or just of kind of social science, I guess, or society that was very, uh, very, uh, what would you say, language of sex. Mm-hmm. You know, concerned with expression and this discourse. Yeah. To what I felt was a detriment of actual experience. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of makes sense to me, I think, of that particular moment, that discursive turn, that Habermasian type of approach to politics, right? At the detriment of... Yeah. I mean, not that, not that I want to say that those things are, are, are pointless or even... Sure, yeah, I yeah, of course. It's just that the, bound, the boundary between them is being inexpertly drawn. And also, particularly with that kind of transcendental... Uh, idea of an I- ideal speech. If mm-hmm. everyone could understand each other properly, everything would be fine. I just don't buy that. Yeah. You know, I think that actually a lot of time, a lot of the time, conflict and political struggle, it's happening between people because they have an accurate understanding of their interests. Yeah. Not because it's obscure. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair way of, of looking at things. And maybe we can get onto that in a bit more sort of empirical detail in a in a little bit. I mean, I want to go back to your, your journey, if I may. And you you do your time in Palestine and and, and then what? Where does where does life take well, you? Well then then I went on a bit of a uh, I don't know, it didn't seem like it didn't seem like a diversion at the time because I didn't know what I was gonna do. <laughs> but I uh, I went to Japan Okay. after I graduated from university and I taught English there. And then I came back to Dundee and I worked in the civil service as an entry-level kind of, sort of bureaucrat um, dealing with uh, the fascinating realm of the pensioners minimum income guarantee. Um, I must interrupt you for a second because listeners to this will not be able to see your face, but I can see your uh, face and you are enthralled. The passion yeah. that you are speaking about this topic with is incredible. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, actually there was, there was a good, there was a good aspect to it in that you could help pensioners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that was hard. I mean, basically, the point of the job was to not give them the money. <laughs> um, so I didn't like it. That's all I need to know. Right. Um, yeah. And I didn't. I didn't foresee my future in that field. So um, I went back to Japan, 
I went back to Japan and I did a master's degree at a university in Japan mm-hmm. um, in global political economy, which was good, actually. It was fun. Um, and it also exposed me to some other kind of ideas and theories that I probably wouldn't have done. Elsewhere. Such as? Well, actually, game theory. Okay. Um, not that this is something I use or particularly subscribe to, yeah. but um, one of the guys who taught at the university I was at was actually uh, leading one of the world's leading game theorists. He was often thought of as somebody who was going to get the Nobel Prize for economics and then didn't. So very, very like mainstream um, kind of what do you say, neoclassical orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. But when you look into the presuppositions of game theory, it's quite fascinating at a philosophical level. And also, um, I remember just one particular thing that he said, where he said, okay, I'm completely neutral between forms of distribution. So if you could have an all in, an perfectly intelligent, all-powerful planner, that's fine. And that's the same as if you can have, uh, you know, markets that have perfect information mm-hmm. uh, within them. But neither of those things are possible. So we have to choose the thing that has the, the, the least bad, um, you know, uh, lack of information. Right. And for him, that was the kind of market. But so it was interesting, and it also forces me. I find that it 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 gave me greater respect for my that type of thinking. Sure. Like not to just dismiss things, to actually kind of look at what people are saying rather than just make assumptions about it. Gotcha. And is this when your your interest in political economy really starts to to crystallize in the yeah. more intellectual sense rather than the the, the more well, everyday politics sense. That was when I was being taught. Mm-hmm. You know, that was when I was really learning. So, and it was quite rigorous, I think, quite good. Um, so after that, so I thought I kind of, I could have stayed on to do a, a PhD there, but I felt kind of wanted to come back. So mm-hmm. came back to the University of Edinburgh which is where I, I did my start my PhD. Great. And the PhD was on what and with whom? PhD was uh, on Jordan. So it was on the reasons why um, Jordan had made the kind of choices of alliances that it did mm-hmm. in the 1950s. To the point when there was a growth of an Arab nationalist movement in Jordan, like in other Arab states, which famously almost led to the toppling of the Jordanian monarchy. But then monarchy retained power and moved from having flirted with um, kind of different kind of alignments back 
into this essentially permanent uh, status of local, um, yeah, kind of client of Western states. So I was trying to see why that happened. And the, the typical answers were, well, just, just kind of conservative regime on top of a conservative society. And yeah. In particular, the the kind of so-called Bedouin tribesmen were naturally kind of had an affinity with the Hashemite monarchy and that's the source of the stability, as opposed to the Palestinian population who were more radicalized but, but kind of politically weaker. Um, those things aren't total nonsense, but what I went back and tried to argue or to look back at the kind of formation of, or the social formation that developed in what became Jordan from the late Ottoman period, to argue that it was an instance of uneven and combined development, where social relations that were based around tribute-taking among kinship groups, which elsewhere broke down or recomposed in a different way in Iraq or in Syria. Um, In Jordan, it was the British that provided a kind of lifeline to the the leadership of these groups by just subsidizing them, basically. And that that, um, that was the source of this change of alignment, which was not also a fixed thing. I mean, there was a real possibility for Jordan to be different. Um, so that was my, uh, that was my PC. And, you know, I spent about a year in Amman, mm-hmm. uh, in a And it was, what well, my first supervisor was actually a guy called Roland Danreuter, who now works at the University of Westminster, mm-hmm. I think, still. Um, but he moved. Uh, kind of when I was in the middle. So then my supervisors were uh, a guy called Toby Kelly, who's still here in Edinburgh, um, who's first anthropologist working on Palestine, and Adham Saudi, who you, you probably know. I do indeed. Yeah. Professor Adham Saudi. Yeah. Of late. Professor indeed, yeah. Yes, <laughs> which is wonderful news. So. Yeah, um, Jamie, this this PhD then turns into a prize-winning book, I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, I took out a fair chunk of the, like, literature review that no, mm-hmm. nobody's going to be interested in, you know, it's in there because you have to prove, you have to prove you have actually, you know, read Alexander Vent or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not of interest to the general reader. So, but aside from that, it's basically the same structure. Um, okay. With a few additions and revisions. But that came out in, so that's called The Struggle for the State in Jordan. Um, came out in 2016. And I was a co-winner. So uh, there were two winners of this award, the Jadalia Political Economy Book Award. Um, so I got it and so did uh, Shireen Saikali for her book about Palestinian capital, 
um, men of capital, so this kind of Palestinian Israeli. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's a wonderful book. It's not my favourite of your books, but it is a wonderful book. <laughs> Sorry if that's a controversial um, point, but um, I, I think your um, age of counter-revolution is spectacular, and we'll get onto that in a minute. Thank you. Um, one quick question on this, in the PhD more broadly, what what facilitated this shift away from Palestine, where you'd spent time, you'd built up your networks, you started to get this interest in it, to, to Jordan? Well, there were a few things. One is very practical. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. And it's a bit unfair to Jordan, perhaps, that you get a lot of, I think, PhD students in Britain, maybe in America, who who study the country at a kind of early point because it's kind of more convenient to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was a big part of it. Also, it's a former British mandate. The records are here. Yeah. The, the archives are here. Um, my supervisor had a lot of connections. Um, through a guy called Tarek Tell, who's still a, a kind of friend of mine, works in AUB, uh, but he's his uh, father was a very important figure in the 1960s in Jordan in, mm-hmm. in, in regime, um, and he was great. And kind of, I couldn't have really done it without him. So that was one reason. I mean, another reason was I originally started wanting to do something about Palestine. But I did. I, I just didn't have anything new to say. Okay. I, I mean, I, I I could have just said, you know, like settler colonialism is bad, um, or <laughs> the Palestinians are being treated unjustly, yeah. which is all true. But yeah. people know that. Yes. Well, some people know. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe not enough people know that. Yeah. It's not a work of. It's not an original contribution to knowledge. That is the, the the phrase that many a PhD supervisor has uttered to a PhD student over the years. Yeah. Yes. So, thank you for that. I mean, that's that's really interesting, and I think that that candid answer to the the shift, the pragmatic shift, I think is really valuable for for people. And I do think that having that that honesty and transparency about things just not being possible or viable, I think it's really important to to acknowledge that. I mean, I would also say that, like, whatever, if you're doing a PhD, there are some parts of it that are going to be hard and not interest you, and there's always going to be parts that will interest you. So, wherever you're doing it, it's at such a level of depth, yeah. concentration, you'll find something in that. And I also, I mean, Jordan isn't under underappreciated in many ways as a as a, mm-hmm. as a state, as a society, as a political economy. So, and I, I met many uh, friends and, and comrades still in touch with in, in Jordan. Um, but also, you need to do, if you want to be a professional scholar, you have to, you know, do a project that is, enables you to learn the, the skills, Exactly. And I think that's, yeah, that's really valuable information and insight. So thank you for, for sharing. Now, let's get on to my favorite, please. Um, 
This is the wonderful um, The Age of Counter-Revolution, States and Revolutions in the Middle East, which is a project that is um, something that I'm incredibly interested in, and I think you do such a wonderful job of portraying the complexity of uh, a series of precarious political environments that were then co-opted by counter-revolutionary strategies driven by those in positions of power and their desire to stay in power. It's really bleak. It's a really, really bleak book, but it is a wonderful book. Can you tell people who've not read it, and I strongly encourage you to get hold of a copy and, and have a read of it, what, what's it about, please? Well, thanks for being so kind about it. So it's about what happens to the thing that people call the Arab Spring. So the series of uprisings, which I consider to be revolutionary uprisings in 2011, and the history of a decade of the suppression, division, uh, slide into civil war, mm -hmm. external intervention, um, and renewed authoritarianism that happened to those uprisings. So why did that occur? Um, and the point I wanted to make central point I wanted to make is that's not inevitable um, that there's a kind of shrugging of the shoulders at the uh, the fate of the Arab revolution that says actually this is always going to happen or these were not in some sense really revolutionary uprisings for some or other reason typically because they don't fit a standard model in the social science literature that revolutionary uprisings are, or revolutions are the things that win mm -hmm. um, which there's good reason to, to say that because if you have a, you have an outcome you can give an explanation for that sure. yeah. but my point is counter-revolution is also a revolutionary outcome yeah. it's an outcome of the revolutionary situation that occurred and these were really really um wide and deep revolutionary situation. Mm. So in terms of the, first of all, the sheer number of people they mobilized. If you look at Egypt, for example, which is one of the lower, actually, funnily enough, one of the lower levels of mobilization, you're still talking about six, seven, eight, maybe nine million people yeah. directly involved in revolutionary action. Mm -hmm. And then you look at places like um Bahrain, yeah. you're talking about a fifth to a third of the yeah. citizen population in a demonstration, yeah. in one demonstration. I mean, can you imagine that if in London there were 25 million people on a demonstration? Mm -hmm. um, other places are very dif more difficult to get figures for, but we know that from specific cities in Syria, there were certainly similar levels of participation, maybe not in Damascus and Aleppo. Libya, some of the figures given are astonishing. I mean, two-thirds of the population claiming to participate in the uprising. Yeah. I think that's probably a bit of an overestimate, quite a significant overestimate, but still the point is if you compare this to what we think of as classically huge revolutionary moments, France, Russia, 
China, 1949 even, these are involved far more people, or proportionately. Yep. Um, and they also spread across more countries. And they did lead to um, the downfall of at least three regimes, three ruling um, dictators. Um, so, well, in Tunisia, in Ali, mm-hmm. uh, Mubarak, and also Ali Abdel Saleh. And then in Libya, with aid from NATO, I think that that was important, Western intervention into into Libya. But nonetheless, uh, Gaddafi was also removed from power as a result. In Syria, the regime really has regained control of most most of the country, but it's not the same thing as it was in 2011, for sure. and for a significant period of time, had lost control of a yeah. very sizable proportion of the territory to different political entities. In Bahrain, you know, the, there's an argument there. It's a very small state. But I would say that by the middle of March 2011, Bahraini monarchy was not in control of the country. And that that's why they had to rely upon um, the external intervention. So basically, that there were situations of divided sovereignty as a result of very large, very broad, um, class-based, although not necessarily working class. So mm-hmm. often based upon forms of kind of class dis- discontent in different fractions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these are like. Uh, replay of some, you know, uh, imagined version of uh, a working class revolution that nonetheless are rooted in the political economy, um, which leads to deep situations of divided sovereignty. Now, that's a revolutionary situation. And how that is resolved could be in on the grounds of a formation of a new order, a new political order, a new social order a political revolution or a social revolution, in other words, mm-hmm. or some kind of reconstitution of the old order. Not necessarily the same personnel, not necessarily even the same governing ideology, but in some ways, in some way, uh, favorable to the way in which things were previously done. So it's always a recomposition. You, mm-hmm. you don't just go back to year zero. Or, or the way things were on the 24th of January, 2011. Yeah, Always sure. That's really interesting. Um, I have so many questions on the basis of what you just said, but also on the, on the book itself. But I wonder if maybe we can just tease out a few terminology points, please. Uh, you've talked about the importance of revolution and viewing this as a series of revolutions that were then quashed, through counter-revolutionary strategies, and I, I'm inclined to agree with you, particularly that I mean the Bahraini context is is incredible. There was um, some work done by I think Greg Gores and Sean Yom that that said per capita this is the largest revolutionary demonstration in terms of population per capita size in history. Oh, I, I think it's probably true. Yeah, 
Okay, which I I don't know if if that is accurate, but if you're saying it's true, and then Greg and Sean are saying it's true, and I know it's it's huge, and that surely constitutes a revolutionary moment. So, just just tell us, Jamie, why revolution matters in terms of terminology and not protest, not uprisings, and certainly not spring and uh, or awakening for that matter. The most common definition in social science is data sculptural definition of revolution as social mm-hmm. or social revolution as transformation, fundamental transformation um, associated with in part achieved by mass class-based mobilization from below. So you've got these elements that fit with our historical kind of concept of what revolution is. But that does have some problems, I think. In the, on the one hand, I don't deal with this so much in the book, although I do talk about examples of this in the 50s and 60s, that you can have revolutions from above. Yeah. You have these fundamental social transformations done by a ruling regime in order to maintain its power rather than uh, because of mobilizations from below. And then you get revolutionary uprisings which you know, fracture the state. They open the opportunity for fundamental transformation, but they don't succeed. And if you don't look at those, then it means you're, you're doing what in more quantitative forms of social science they call selecting on the dependent variable. In other words, if you only look at successful revolutions, you never know why revolutions succeed. Mm-hmm. And more, more than that, you don't understand why counter-revolutions succeed, yeah. which is actually the more common outcome. So that's why I wanted to shift the focus. Mm-hmm. Instead of just thinking, you know, about the failure of the revolutionaries, and there are many, but let's think about the success of the counter-revolution, which leads to a second point about why to use this this term as opposed to just popular uprisings or mobilization or mass movements. I mean, all those are part of the experience, but I think it's important to recognize something about revolutions is that they are very disruptive and dangerous events um, and that that is constitutive of them as a historical experience. Mm-hmm. So that the fact that we've seen such violence, I mean, in the main counter-revolutionary violence, but not solely, um, in the region, since 2011, it doesn't show that this is an exceptional region or that these are kind of not revolutionary events. It shows that this is actually quite uh, conforming to type yeah. in terms of revolutionary events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Um, continuing the, the terminological point then, um, I want to unpick counter-revolution in a minute but you've oh hell let's do it now we're going to divided sovereignty in a second but what what is this counter-revolution then because 
there's there's a lot going on with it, and it's sort of there's a a, a degree of tension I think in a counter revolution or a revolution. Um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're meaning, but that this is, I guess, a counter-revolution is a form of revolution from above. Um, it could be seen that way. I think that it's it's distinct. So the first point is I do think in order to have a counter-revolution, you need to have a revolution. Yeah. Like there has to be countering something. And that the counter-revolution is both a policy, and this is something that particularly the ruling class, or ruling elite will do, uh, but also a movement, so it's not just them, mm-hmm. wider group of political actors, which is to try and close, to end a revolutionary situation, to put a stop to the, the possibility of transformation in ways that are not exactly the same as, but kind of favorable to the previous order. But that previous order could be social, could be political, or it could be both. I mean, you get different variants of it. So when I say social or political, it's possible for us to, or we must distinguish, I think, between particular personnel of a mm-hmm. state or a regime, Mubarak or whoever it might be, um, the institutions that they run and the way in which they run, so the kind of state, and the social order of which that state is, is a part. Because it's, it's possible to transform the former the state or the, at least the institutions and definitely the personnel and not the latter. So you can have a political revolution and not social revolution. Mm-hmm. You can even have a political revolution that acts in counter-revolutionary ways so that it forestalls a social revolution. Yeah. But that's been relatively uncommon, actually, in the, in the Arab case, Arab uprising. But I think a lot of the perspective of the Muslim Brotherhood was along those lines. I mean, genuinely wanting electoral democracy but not a fundamental social transformation, which put them in kind of contradictory situations they found themselves in in Egypt yeah. and elsewhere, and Tunisia, actually. Um, so there's a distinction between social and political revolution. And therefore, distinctions between social and political counter-revolutionary, counter-revolution. Mostly, I think what we've seen have been straightforward um, counter-revolutions across all meanings of the term. So if you look at the role of the the Saudis and the UAE, they want no element of popular control over the state, Mm -hmm. and they want to maintain and increase um, their exploitative control over the resources of the region in alliance with outside power. So, absolutely that way. But you can have some very strange, I think, outcomes which are not easy to to navigate. So, let's say if you look at Daesh, is the most obvious, yeah. which you know you couldn't say 
some conspiratorially minded opponents of the Syrian regime try to see them as tools of that regime. They're not. There have been occasional allies, or at best, let's say, the best of enemies. Um, but ISIS, in the end, were brutally crushing the people who had actually risen up against yeah. Assad regime. So they end, I mean, this is at least my argument, which is in one of the chapters of the book. They were acting as counter-revolutionaries. Some people might see it differently. They might say nothing could be more revolutionary than these guys. I mean, they want to change the whole world. So I think there's a room for a debate. But um, there has to be a distinction between these forms of political and social revolution. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. And that point about Daesh is is really fascinating. Uh, I'm thinking of the the videos that they released in the summer of 2014, um, declaring end to Sykes-Picot, breaking all the barriers and all the borders, and um, that sort of pointing to a revolution of the quote-unquote Westphalian colonial Middle Eastern state system, right? That seems revolutionary. But then the social components, as you say, are so far from revolutionary. So that that tension is fascinating, and it's something that you... You, you tease out quite quite well in the book, I think. It's really, really interesting. So, the other point that I wanted to pick up on, and this, I fear, must be our last point, because we've been going oh. for a very long time, and there's so much more that we can, we can reflect on. But sovereignty, Jamie, and this mm. is something that, um, that I use in in my book that does similar types of things to what you've been doing although not explicitly looking at counter-revolution um the 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 differentiation i guess between us is i i look at sort of biopolitical mechanisms of control which you could very easily frame as counter-revolution you you talked about divided sovereignty i wonder if you can just elaborate on your your view of sovereignty and the state please because i think at the heart, that's revolutions are about claims over and to the states, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're very actually. When you say sovereignty, it's not sovereignty is not just the state, but yeah, um, that because revolutions are claims over claims over power, mm-hmm. um, that they are fundamentally concerned with that issue. So the term divided sovereignty I take from Charles Tilly, and it's a pretty um, I wouldn't say it really fits in very well with a biopolitical concept of sovereignty because it's one in which there is a there is a central point or at least some kind of institutional core from which power emanates. Mm. It's just that you that it can be fractured. Now, if you have a very Foucauldian um, notion of sovereignty, that doesn't Yep. really um so that's in order partially to understand what it means to have a revolutionary situation um that you have contending claims to make that power mm-hmm. but i think that there's an interesting way to see this in the the ways that people tend to create counter institutions to redistribute their sovereignty yeah. 
which you see in, I mean, you definitely saw it in the kind of operations of the demonstrations in the square, squares, Tunisia, in Egypt, in Bahrain, actually, briefly at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the kind of local administrative councils that grew up in Syria. So there is a, a, an attempt, which were some, in some issues, some some of the local coordinating committees inspired by actually definitely a vision of a different kind of sovereignty, a different kind of distribution of power. Um, so it's a, it's a different way of looking at, at it, I think. I mean, I'm, I came across uh, a, some completely off Middle East, but some, mm-hmm. some writing on COVID, you know, a few years ago when everybody was, when a gambin that made yeah. some people angry. And um, there were some responses to him, including by a guy called uh, Jasper Vernes, who said, um, the point we're seeing now with COVID, the way that it's act, the way the governments act, is fundamentally about basically keeping circulation and accumulation going. So that sovereignty is not concerned, uh, you know, to make live and let die. It's to make work and let buy. Uh, yeah. Which I thought was quite a, an interesting little um, aside. So I think we might need to rethink some of the, these things. I think um, it's it's a harder nut than it is made out in some of these theories of, of sovereignty. Yeah, I think so too. I think I think there's a real tension between the approach that is sort of singular, um, grounded, very much located within the institutional hierarchies of the state, the sort of neo-Weberian model, or the, the hybridity, or the the pluralistic accounts, and, and reflecting on the interplay of those different approaches and their relationship with the state, with faith communities, with identity groups, is something that I think we and others have... Um, I've got a lot more work to do on just yet. But I think for people who want to get a handle on where some of these questions are going, they could do much, much worse than than read your book and, and read your work more broadly, Jamie. So I mean, we've been going for such a long time now. I really could go on for a lot longer, but I think for the sake of your diary and my voice, we should probably call it a day. But thank you so much, Jamie. This has been a, a real, real pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Simon, I've really enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Jamie for his time just now. You can't find him on Twitter, so do check out his book instead. He's done some really fantastic work, prize-winning, as we've just discussed, and his new book on the counter-revolutionary components of the Arab uprisings really is a must-read. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.